Thanks for the memories. You've got a friend in us. This is episode 19, Bonfire of the Vanities from 1990. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski, with us tonight to talk about a movie that some people consider one of the worst movies of all time. Is it one of the worst movies of all time? We will get into it. Joining us tonight from the Cinema Stories series on YouTube, we have Mr. Austin Wolf Southern. Hello, Austin. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Good. Thank you for being here. Welcome back after your champion appearances on Mazes and Monsters and Cocktail. Mm-hmm. Now to talk about The Bonfire of the Vanity. So I feel like Cocktail is often considered by many, maybe not by us, but by many, to be Tom Cruise's worst movie of all time. The Bonfire of the Vanities, I think, is considered by many, maybe not us, to be Tom Hanks's worst movie. Not even just his movie, but like one of the worst movies of all time. Everyone involved, right? Like from De Palma to Bruce Willis. <laughs> Everyone involved, and we will we will get into that in a in a big way later. Mm. Uh, this was the first time that I had seen this. Uh, Mike, I believe that's the same for you too? Yep, same here. Now, before we get... I, I want Mike to uh, summarize the plot for us in a minute, but Austin, had you seen this movie before, or was this a first-time watch for you? Uh, I had seen this before. Did you sign up because you like it, you don't like it, or just wanted to talk about it? I signed up because I'm a huge De Palma fan. Okay. I'm really into Brian De Palma, and a few years ago, I went through his entire filmography and watched every film in order. I don't know if you guys have ever done anything like that. And it was really fascinating, and so now, just like any opportunity to watch a De Palma film, whether or not I like it, I'm going to take it, you know? And I, I just like the opportunity to discuss him, and I, yeah, it was just kind of the, just wanting to talk about De Palma and, and curious to rewatch this film, because I didn't dislike it the first time, but I will say I liked it more this time. Okay. Yeah. Well, we will get into that, because I have some thoughts, and I know in, in terms of a, uh, a podium of if we're giving out medals for how much we like this movie, I am... <laughs> Pretty firmly in third place, and champion of the podcast right now is Mr. Mike Manzi, who I don't want to, I don't know why, but I know that he loved it. (laughs) So we'll get into that. But before we do, Mike, if you want to share with the listeners who have maybe avoided this movie up to this point in their lives, what is the Bonfire of the Vanities about? Good luck. Good luck. I will try and keep it like as short and concise as possible. Uh, Tom Hanks plays a Wolf of Wall Street, Sherman McCoy, who's cheating on his wife with Melanie Griffin. And one night they're coming back from a party and they get off at the wrong exit for Manhattan and end up in the Bronx and accidentally, or not, I'm not sure, we'll get into that too. They cause a hit and run, which attracts the attention of Jed Kramer, played by Saul Rubinek, who's like Mm -hmm. the young district attorney, if I'm not mistaken. Assistant to the district attorney. Assistant who's like thrown this case to try and find the guy who's a hit and run and um, I forget exactly how but uh, super drunk Peter Fallow who's played by Bruce Willis who is a reporter this case kind of like falls into his lap and he pursues it and becomes like an investigator and writes a big book about it Uh, there's a trial presided over by a very sassy bald Morgan Freeman exactly there's voiceover amazing camera work but as far as like plot and story like that's that's pretty much like all there really is and then uh, you know it's all of the sort of paranoia that Tom Hanks's character experiences while trying to dodge the uh, 
uh, authorities and not get blamed uh, in this hit and run. So this is based off a 750-page novel by Tom Wolfe, who apparently this was like his first fictional writing, and he was surprised when Hollywood said that they wanted to adapt it. He's like, I don't, I don't think that they would want to do this. So that's a great way to start. He's watched this movie three times. He doesn't like it. He thinks something's missing each time. Melanie Griffith refused to read the novel that this was based on. She said, quote, I don't know why anybody would want to. Maybe I was demanding, but that was a hard shoot too. Well, that I saw that on IMDb, and it's, I feel like it's out of context. Probably. She just says, like, her saying, why would anyone want to read that? Like, we don't, I don't know what she means by that. I don't think she's putting down the book. I think she's saying, as an actress playing this role, she's only committed to the movie. She wants to play the movie's character and not the novel's character. That would be my guess as to what she was saying. But we don't really know. I felt like that quote made her sound bad, but it was out of context. And my guess is that it was a little, a little better than that. Does that also suggest that this was a difficult shoot to any degree? Because, I mean, she was on the set of Roar. Uh, you know, she, <laughs> she's experienced the worst of the worst on set. So I can't imagine her, like, feeling that this was, like, a tough go-through or anything. But Well, no one liked Bruce Willis on set. Yes. I think she was okay, and she had worked with De Palma before on Body Double, so they must like each other. I do want to point out that she had just given birth to Dakota Johnson like six months before they filmed this, so oh. that was, you know, one of my favorite parts about this movie is that she would get to go home to a baby Dakota Johnson, uh, who, you know, I love in movies now. I will start this off by saying my favorite part of this movie is whatever Melanie Griffith thinks she's doing in this movie. She's amazing. She's hilarious. I don't know if this is how the character's written in the book, I don't know what is going on, but it feels like she exists in a different world on a different spectral plane, and I cannot get enough of it. So does Kim Cattrall. You just hit the nail on the head for me. Like, as soon as this movie starts with Bruce Willis, like, I'm like, what? what is he doing? And then we're introduced to Tom Hanks doing half of his volunteer's character. I'm like, what is he doing? And as, as the movie goes on, I'm like, everyone thinks that this is their movie, and it's amazing to me. Yeah, and so none of us have read the book, right? No. So here's a here's a little bit of a background. I had just asked uh, two episodes ago, or the last episode of Hanks with the Memories, when we talked about Joe versus the Volcano, is that I have a friend who's one of the hosts of Tub Talk, another podcast on the network that is sort of in hiatus right now as we do another series. We do like little seasons. And he is super into reading. And he sort of got me back into reading because he just, he reads so much and talks about the books and it sort of energizes me. And so I asked him, can you, for me, put together a reading list for next year? Because my goal each year, I usually don't hit it, but my goal each year is to read 10,000 pages like 30 a day and he said sure and he put together a reading list for me and one of the books on the list was bonfire the vanities and i said to him i'm supposed to watch this movie in like a month and a half uh for hanks for the memories i've never seen it before and both he and another one of the hosts on the tub talk podcast were like that movie is trash don't see it so I was, I think, skewed coming into this. I had sort of heard, I think this is one that, Mike, you and I had teased about a little bit, that this was like one of the ones where like, you know, you, we had heard some bad things about certain movies here and there for both Hanks and Cruz, but this is one of the big ones where it's like, ooh, that's, uh, that's going to be that's gonna be something to talk about. And we got here, but no. I mean, to answer the question, no, I have not read the book. I want to, I still plan to, because I think that there's a good there's a good story here. I just, it's a lot of writing to fit into a relatively compact two hours that also is not compact at all. I don't know. Yeah, because I'm curious. I mean, I guess I'll hear your opinion of it. It sounds like you didn't like it that much. But when it came out, it seems like everyone had read the book. And the impression that I got just like reading up on it was that everyone had read the book, loved the book, and that's kind of why they hated the movie was because it wasn't the book and because he made a lot of changes. So 
you know, I feel like, I mean, I was hoping, you know, that maybe this movie was due for a reappraisal and by people who haven't read the book, because on its own merits, I think it's really good. See, that's where, that's where I think I come in, because I take it completely on its own terms and stuff not having read the book and also growing up like or from since it came out like being told to stay away from this movie like actively by every time it came up just just it had one of the worst reputations of a movie I think I've ever known and you know I don't necessarily I, I mean there's so many things about this movie that are genuinely great like technically and stuff so like there's merit to what's actually going on here if you don't necessarily like the style he chose in which to interpret this story but I think it also fell in line with something like The Firm for for me where that's another movie where I was told stay away and when I saw it I was like this movie's a lot of fun you know it might not be the book I don't know I didn't read that either but I guess that's you know that's where I stand like I I'm one of the people who are just watching these as movies and I think on their own they're working for me and I'm I'm especially highly entertained by this one so to answer your question Austin I did not like this movie I didn't hate this movie like I don't think this is terrible I don't think this is unwatchable I'm keeping a list on my letterbox of all the Tom Hanks movies in order and just that's a weird kind of blend of like how good I think he is in it how good the movie is how I want to rewatch it recommend it all it's like it's a bunch of things that doesn't it doesn't quite make sense it's useful for almost no one but me but this is somewhere in the middle toward the bottom but in the middle like I'd rather rewatch this than more than a handful of the ones we've already covered like I think this holds up in a weird way kind of better I think it's in a weird way sort of less problematic even though it's got its own problems I think that this is you know again going back to Melanie Griffith I think whatever she's doing here I'm really enjoying I think there's problems with the movie yeah well did you like Kim Cattrall too because I thought she was hilarious also I, I thought she was great too did you like F. Murray Abraham because I mean if we're talking problematic this movie is nothing but problematic like if you want to take that view of it but I think that's what it's saying too is like how ridiculous it can get to to a point where it becomes like a frenzy it's a little bit challenging it's meant to be I think challenging for white audiences because this is a movie about racial politics that maybe you know maybe De Palma shouldn't have been the one to take on but he's always been interested in that and you you know there are signs of that in his earlier work and there are parts of this like I don't know that reminded me of like have you seen Hi Mom? No. No I've never even heard of that one. Yeah Hi Mom is from 70 with De Niro and there's a segment in it where these like white people go to an interactive play called Be Black Baby and they like live through the black experience and it's a really like harrowing difficult challenging scene to watch but it it's brilliant and I you know I think De Palma just like has those interests and he he wants you to feel a little uncomfortable he wants you to like if you do relate to Tom Hanks I think he wants you to like feel bad about yourself for relating to him or any of the the white characters I think he had ideas there that maybe he didn't fully commit to enough but I don't know I think it's meant to be I think the problematic aspects are meant to be challenging yeah, and but I just think at times, like, or I think this movie definitely gets away from him at times with the tone where it's too over the top and operatic, where mm-hmm. I, I could see someone like Spike Lee kind of nailing this to the point where, like, he, you know, gets the humor and the drama, whereas this is completely devoid of the drama for me, and I just watch it with a huge kind of grin on my face and I feel like I'm sort of in on a joke but I'm not sure if he's going full satire or if he was trying to and if that's even the right choice for this material right yeah I thought of Spike Lee for sure watching this movie and what he could have done with it and you know he would be a better choice 
I think ultimately my biggest problem with this is that I felt like I wanted more, right? Like I wanted characters to go deeper. I wanted there to be more interplay. Like I think that the, I mean, again, I haven't read the book. I'm going to sometime next year that I think that there's probably a lot of humor there, a lot of pathos, like a lot of things, like a lot of conflicting emotions that are better balanced over 700, 750 pages than in these two hours. And I just feel like there's so many characters that we're sort of seeing the movie through and so many different lenses and so many different storylines. And I feel like we don't get deep enough with a lot of them to sort of really, truly get a sense of who they are or what they're doing or why they are involved in the bigger picture. And I also think the fact that, like, Tom Hanks is not great, I don't think, in this role, that Bruce Willis is even worse in his role. Bruce Willis is great. He's so good. I think Hanks is too at times here. I think Hanks is perfect in this movie. Boy, oh boy. Well, we'll we'll get into that. But I just think that there's so many sort of problems. I think that's just too widespread. Like, I think if this was like, you know, Mike, I think you recommend this a lot, especially with with novel and adaptations. If this was a miniseries, if this was like a six-hour, eight-hour, ten-hour miniseries, right? I think that that could tell this, like, sweeping narrative of, you know, what, like, it's not not the same thing, but, you know, like a a series like Show Me a Hero about the housing crisis in New York in the 80s, right? Like, I think that's something that is specific to a time and to a place and to a group of people and able able to be fleshed out and led by great performances like from Oscar Isaac like you could do something like that and really tell a full story here but I think that because there's so much presumably to cover in such a tight window it just kind of ramps up to a goofy level that doesn't quite make sense at times. For me, where I feel like they might have tried to compensate with the lack of sort of character development, especially with Bruce Willis, who I noticed like, oh, they start in the movie with him and they sort of do like the wraparound with him, right? And I'm like, oh, it's his movie. No, he like kind of disappears, but we get that goofy noir voiceover. And I'm like, is he just reading from Bonfire of the Vanities? And like, did they throw this in because they realized like we don't have enough time with him and he's a super major character and we really have to understand like out of everybody after Hanks, like what he's thinking and how he's feeling and stuff. And then they just go overdrive with it to the point where like his voiceover is interrupted when his characters like run over on a on the stairs outside of city hall or something and it's just like ridiculousness at that point and so yeah i I definitely see those problems with this uh and also too many characters like we're spending way too much time with the mayor for sure uh like i understand the assistant da has to interact with them but like he gets that one incredibly harrowing speech with poor wendell pierce in the corner you know like just standing there and like that was more than enough we needed to understand this guy so yeah i hear that i hear it but it it all worked for me i mean i i do think bruce willis's character could have been almost entirely cut from the movie and it would make no difference oh that's interesting yeah so i thought at the very beginning because i did not know the framing context that he was a novelist which i guess he kind of is but that tom hanks was a character in his book and i was like "Ooh, this could be weird and then they exist in the same world and i was like oh and so that might have just been like me trying to like guess a twist or just sort of guess a framing device that wasn't true but i felt like because it sort of felt like he was omniscient right i think he is because like the the scene at the beginning is actually the scene at the end right like it's a bookend of like him accepting all of the awards of that book for him documenting the story but i think that there was something exciting to me about like that none of this is real or it's like a fictionalized version and maybe you could sort of say that too that like this is the way that bruce willis's character sees the story i don't know but i got the sense that like through that opening you know tracking shot and the opening voiceover that this was going to be like a wildly different way to tell a story than it actually was not that that would have made it better or worse but i sort of had my for whatever reason like a mindset of like oh this is what it is and then they just appear in the same place i was like oh okay i guess that makes more sense but yeah it takes a long time for those stories to 
connect or to see why. I mean, I knew he was telling like a a real story or whatever, but I I was like, when when do they come together? Like it it takes a little too long, and I was just like, why is this even being narrated? Why is this a voiceover at all? Because I don't generally like narration or voiceover. But then once he actually does like become a part of the story, I was a little more into it. But I did wonder, like, if that character is even in the book. Like, he feels like a character who might not even be in the book. Because what's the point of him? So in the book, he's British. So they changed him for the movie. I think there's a lot of things that they sort of try to change. Like, a lot of the casting, I'm sure... Austin, you read this on IMDb too, but like they cast Tom Hanks here because they knew that the main character was kind of not villainy, but sort of unlikable, right? And they cast him because people liked Tom Hanks. That De Palma wanted Steve Martin. Uh, the previous director, Mike Nichols, wanted Steve Martin. And then producers were like, no, we want Tom Hanks. And so they just cast Tom Hanks. And there's like a lot of things like that where they're just kind of arbitrarily changing things to sort of soften, soften the story that they're telling and it doesn't necessarily work and it feels like because one thing or like for any number of reasons because this certain actor or actress wasn't available or wasn't the preferred choice that we're going to change things and sort of tweak things to fit our version which is fine in adaptation but i feel like when it's this complicated and elaborate of a narrative you kind of can't do that unless you really make it your own and i don't know that it necessarily hits that point yeah, I mean, that might be the one thing where maybe De Palma wasn't committed enough to either making Tom Hanks likable or unlikable. You know, from what I understand in the book, it is a very unlikable character. And like, that's very clear that you're supposed to hate this guy. And in this one, especially by the end, it seems like you're supposed to be kind of rooting for him. And I know that was like a big difference that people complained about when it came out, when everyone had read the book. And, you know, that was a big, a huge change in character. But I think it's interesting from a modern lens that I think Tom Hanks doesn't come across as likable. Like watching it now, like I, I didn't, like him you know he's still like kind of a bad guy and he's cheating on his wife and he's like he does bad shit and I wonder if that was something that you know back in 1990 maybe wasn't so blatant but now like I thought it was really interesting that there's truly no one to root for and I think the Palma probably knew that but maybe just to soften it for box office or whatever like made him appear more likable but like he never actually was What's amazing is his entrance sort of in this movie where he's going to take the dog for a walk and he's just dragging the dog across the floor. Which I thought was so funny, but still was what? Which is very funny. I, it's very funny, but I'm like, okay, I hate this guy. He won't pick up the yeah. dog and carry him yeah. out the door. like, And he doesn't even know the name of his doorman. Like, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to hate this guy and that it's played by Hank's put a huge grin on my face because I'm like, is he going to try and play like dastardly? And he does, but he, and he's not really great at it, but I think he pulls off that, like you're saying, it's like unassuming, like even though he's dragging that dog, you still give him like another shot. Like, you know, it's like, oh, I'll give this guy another chance and see what he's going to do. But then he goes down the street and he dials his mistress. Well, he, he thinks he's calling his mistress and he calls his own freaking house and he's asking his wife for his mistress. I'm like, okay, no, I hate him. <laughs> Yeah. So in that lead role of Sherman McCoy, um, that was obviously the Tom Hanks part, Brian De Palma wanted, I thought John Lithgow would be a better choice. Maybe. Visually is sort of, you know, kind of like not as soft, right? Like, yeah. Gives more of sort of like a meaner presence, maybe. Yeah. And he, and well, and he can do, 
he can definitely do both. He can be likable or villainous, you know? And I think, I mean, I I have to assume it would work because De Palma had worked with Lithgow a bunch before, so he knew kind of what he was capable of. So I, maybe that would be a, a better choice. But I I liked that Tom Hanks... I like that he is an everyman in this movie, even though he is unlikable, he's still, you know, someone that audiences are going to attach themselves to. And I don't, I, I feel like that makes it more interesting, but maybe it is a failure at the same time. Well, it's weird because I want to see him punished, but I don't, but you know, he's, he's not quote unquote guilty, right? Like he's involved in the crime and stuff, but he didn't commit the crime. It was the Melanie Griffiths character. So it's like, I don't want to see him locked up at the end. But I also want to see him sort of lose his mind with all the guilt-wracking shenanigans that he needs to go through, right? Like, I have to see him go through that ringer, or else I won't be satisfied at all, really. You know, if he's just sitting around, like, getting help the whole movie, and then he gets off in the end, like, that's not, that's, I don't like that. So, I'm glad it, I'm glad it did sort of try to, to a degree, he tried to bring that Hitchcock, like, paranoia into this a little more. Yeah, I mean, that, that was part of it, too, is, like, kind of feeling conflicted of, like, do I want to see this guy punished, or do I care what happens to him? Because he's not, he's not driving the car, but he's, he's a part of it, you know, and he, he still could go to the police if he wanted to. And he also, like, maybe overreacted to the situation he was in that, like, caused it in the first place. So here are the other names that were considered. Maybe, I don't know if these would have worked better or not, because I think that you both like Tom Hanks in this movie more than I do. Tom Wolfe, the author, wanted Chevy Chase in that Ooh, role. I definitely would have, would have hated him. Christopher Reeve turned down both this part and the Bruce Willis part, so oh. Superman himself. He would have been yeah. cool as the... Bruce Willis part. I'd never seen him do like drunk like that. Except for evil Superman in Superman 3. Oh boy, the best. Oh yeah. Uh, John Voight, Kevin Costner, and Mr. Tom Cruise, which would have been a cool trickle Days of Thunder era, which I think this is right in line sort of with like the firm sort of the paranoia, sort of the conspiracy kind of thing. Like I think that I think I could see him in this movie better than I could see Hanks, but again, I think you both kind of liked Hanks for whatever he what he brought to this. I think Cruz would have been a much more villainous role. Like, I think he would have been a lot easier to dislike. Right. I would agree with that. And it's hard to say if that would be better or not. I mean, I guess because this movie is a comedy, and that, I mean, that's also the thing that I really liked about it or what made me enjoy it so much more this time around is that this movie's really funny. And that's something that I think Tom Hanks brought in a way that other actors it is that even though it's sort of about serious issues or it is about serious issues that lightness that the comedy brings like makes it is what makes it stand out to me and what makes it sort of like offensive in like a great way see i i thought of that while watching this like some some recent tarantino came to mind like django wearing glorious bastards where i'm sitting there in the theater watching those movies going like oh i'm supposed to be laughing at this like it's a good thing i find this funny because he wants me to be laughing at this kind of stuff and I wasn't quite sure if that was the vibe here, but I kind of think it is, right? It's like, this is supposed to not, not that it's not supposed to be taken seriously, but it's not supposed to be taken literally. Like, it's all just sort of like a spin on how out of control all of these sort of like social barriers make us feel and we all get so like afraid of each other and stuff. But this is taken to like 11, you know, this is, right. it gets Looney Tunes. 
Yeah, it's a satire. And, like, everyone is bad in this movie. Like, everyone is selfish and looking out for themselves. Um, like, all across the board, whether it's the media or the the reverend or even, like, the mother of the boy who got hit and Melanie Griffith. Like, no, there's no one to root for, right? Like, there's, there's, no, there's no champion here. Yeah, there's no one to root for. Yeah, and then, like, Geraldo's just standing there and you're like... <laughs> that was him, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that was Geraldo. Okay, so it's like, I think that's him, but I'm also not sure, so... Okay. It's like, in case you don't hate these people enough, they hang out with Geraldo, too, so... <laughs> <laughs> and his mustache, still looking strong all the way back in 1990. So, Austin, what about you? What is your... If you have to pick a favorite, it might be something that we've talked about already, it might be something that we haven't covered yet. What's your favorite part of the Bonfire of the Vanities? Well, I mean, that opening tracking shot with Bruce Willis is incredible. Mm-hmm. And that, too, there's so much going on, and there's, like, funny stuff happening in the scene, and it's, it's like a five-minute shot, and he's going going through hallways and going in an elevator and doing all this stuff and he's being drunk and he's being really funny I think it's a really like comic performance and he keeps like throwing things and then Rita Wilson I think is great in that scene like trying to talk to him and just like saying like ridiculous things and trying to like keep up with him and keep him interested and she like there's this thing where she has to say the title of his book three times but it's like a ludicrous title and it sounds absurd when she says it but she's just really funny and then everything Bruce Willis like just for so much to be happening during like such an impressive long shot is amazing and it's something that is again like very characteristic of De Palma. Now I don't want to put you under too much pressure here but since you are sort of the resident De Palma expert here tonight where does that opening tracking shot fall among his because I mean that's something that he loves to do I also Mm. love in the middle of this movie where he pulls out the split screen because I know that's something he likes to do a lot too I think that works really well. Ah so great loved seeing the split screen but where in the run uh, or in the uh, the rankings of all of his because i mean you know the the De palma probably closest to mike and my heart snake eyes has the great opening yeah yeah you know, following cage around which again that tracking shot sort of gives you such high expectations of the movie that don't quite deliver i mean i still like snake eyes a lot but that opening is just so incredible like where does this fall in the grand scale like toward the top or in the middle or the bottom or like because i mean when he does it right like it's it's incredible right so like how, how good is this one compared to the rest it's toward the top it's one of the best because it's one of the funniest and i think my favorite i mean i i'd have to go back and like look at them all together and and see which movies even have these long tracking shots but from my memory my favorite is raising cane has and it's more toward the middle of the movie but there's a very long tracking shot and it's like a woman who's being led somewhere through a hospital and she keeps trying to go in the wrong direction and then somebody has to like redirect her and it's just hilarious and it's i remember that being my favorite of his tracking shots but this one's up there and i just like the ones where he's able to incorporate so much within it i think are are the best you know and like snake eyes is they're all good you know like snake eyes is great but i don't remember if there's as much like funny stuff or if it covers i guess it does set up a lot of things yeah i mean it's it's the it's the whole it sets up the conspiracy it's the whole boxing thing it sets up cage as a character i mean like that movie kind of goes off the rails a little bit toward the end and like i think on purpose and not on purpose like it just sort of it just crumbles under its own weight but i think that 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 tracking shot does set up like a ton plus it's also like twice as long i think it's like eight minutes or something as opposed to this is like about four not that not not the saying that like you know four is not a feat because four is absolutely a feat but like when you have eight minutes you're able to incorporate so much more of the movie plus i think the movie's maybe shorter than this one i don't know but like there's a lot more of the movie in that tracking shot than there was here so yeah so I, I think all of his tracking shots are 
are all in the top. They're all great. They're all tied for first. I love that. Mike, what about you? What is your favorite part of this movie that you apparently cherish and hold so dear to your heart? <laughs> I can't explain entirely my love for this. I mean, part of it is, like, they're shooting in New York. Like, it's incredibly technical. Like, it's only... I only feel bad because, like, some of these shots, like that incredible opening shot, like, has to be in this movie. Like, as much as I love it and cherish this movie now and will watch it a lot, like, I cast no illusions that it's great or anything, you know? Like, I understand, like... I do. I think that's a, <laughs> a great movie. Like, I think it's great, but I I can understand why people hate this movie or just they, rub, they don't like this movie. Like, I, I'm not saying everyone needs to like this movie. But um, I think my favorite moment is a Hanks moment and it's because he had a glint of cage in his eye during this scene and it's towards the end during the dinner party and it's the entire part where he's just bailed out of prison everyone knows or thinks mm-hmm. everyone thinks that he's guilty but they're all like playing it off and congratulating him for making bail and like they're having this wonderful dinner party and everybody's just like ignoring the fact that he's like wanted for murder and he goes into his study and he grabs his gun and yeah. he's got this fucking look in his eye and I'm like oh my god Cage would have destroyed this movie he would have burned this movie to the fucking ground and salt the earth after like it would have been one of his best movies and so i think that's another reason why like i like this so much is like it reminds me of of like things it could be and other things that i like and like it's just so crazy i like this movie because it reminds me of better movies that i like more no but i, I know you're i know what you're saying i don't i don't want to make fun of you i just like that you're like i like that you know i get it i, I believe me i get it like it's kind of <laughs> ludicrous like i wish i wish that i could like this as much as you did like i wish that i had that like i don't know if it was just you know my friends like don't watch this like read the book or whatever or just it didn't click for me right away like i don't know what it was specifically because i want to like every movie that i watch i just don't yeah and especially you know I sort of had that idea, you know, when we were talking about casting and stuff, I think Cage would work. And also, this came out in 90, the same year that both Firebirds, but more importantly to me, at least, Wild at Heart came out. Like, can you imagine, like, Sailor Ripley in this movie? Like, that would have been, you know, like, Vampire's Kiss kind of Cage, but, like, more refined and, like, with a little bit more acting chops. Like, he would have crushed this. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's a little unfair. Name one movie that wouldn't be better with Cage in it. It doesn't exist. Yeah, you know, you got you got me there. Which, by the way, I know this is not the Cage Club podcast, but we need to, we need to talk about very, very briefly that they are remaking Face Off, apparently. Oh, oh. man, yeah. Okay, oh, with who? I don't think they've cast that yet. So Dan Hayden, our year 2000 expert, who I think has either been on this podcast or will be on this podcast. He's been on, you know, each of our other shows at least once. Um, he said that he would love to see it with Keanu and Robert Downey Jr., which I would be in favor of. And I said if they did a Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, bringing it back to this podcast, <laughs> I would be okay with that. That'd but be like, nice. other than that, or like if they do like a gender or race swap, I think that could be interesting. But if it's just two white dudes, it's like it's got to be perfect. Otherwise, like, why are you doing this? Now, Austin, I know that you like this movie a lot, but is there something about this that you think doesn't work? If you had to pick a least favorite moment or part, or element or part or scene of the Bonfire of the Vanities, what would that part be? Well, first, I'd, I have other favorite parts. Okay, well then, hit us with them. My answer was is my answer. That's my favorite part. But I also, Melanie Griffith has some really funny lines. And when she says, they're talking about like seeing the something in the street that's blocking their way. And she's like, is it a dead person? Is it a dead animal? And he's like, it's just a 
a tire and she's like a dead tire i thought that was hysterical and then also the line which we end up hearing three times but she says i'm a sucker for a soft dick which is so weird and hilarious and i like i've never been like more okay with hearing a line over and over because <laughs> it's so funny she also had a line that i i really liked uh don't think sherman just fuck and i was like oh, okay yeah, yeah, that, yeah that works yeah. oh so here is She's the so craziest Melanie Griffith trivia, or I think maybe the craziest trivia about this movie, maybe about any movie that I've ever heard, that she left the production, got breast augmentation, like got a boob job, and then came back. Really? That's what IMDb says. But didn't she just have a baby? Because that makes that trivia. She just had a baby. So Dakota Johnson, I looked this up because I want to see if she was pregnant during the movie. Dakota Johnson was born in like October 89. This was filming in like May and June of 90. It came out in fall or winter of 90. So yes. So she had just had a baby. I mean, she, you know, keeping it right and also tight in this movie. She looks great in this movie, especially giving, you know, six months off a baby, right? But And she's like in her underwear for what seems like the first half of this movie. Yeah, I don't, I just, it's, it's crazy to me that you like, like I, I said that to my friends who were telling me not to watch this movie. I said, that sounds like a Christopher Guest sketch that you, you have a character just like in a production who then leaves the set comes back with a boob job you're like uh, what what yeah i well i didn't notice as an audience member i was showing a friend uh, i was showing my roommate roar this afternoon because you know melanie griffith had been had been coming up lately because i was watching this this week and uh you know in that it seems like you know after she after the incident like because she got mauled in that movie had to have like facial reconstructed surgery but yep. it seems like she came back and finished the movie because there's scenes where she's got like a wig and she's not facing the camera and stuff so she's a super trooper uh, when it comes to her craft and she's a complete and utter dedication for whatever it's worth for sure yeah very underrated actress in general i think i melanie griffith is amazing are there other parts about this movie that you really like before you want to talk about what you don't like or is there, or is there did you sort of cover that with those lines yeah i just wanted to mention those two lines because i thought they were really funny my least favorite part is kind of the courtroom scene at the end but specifically when morgan freeman like spells out the themes of the movie oh god that was almost my favorite part yeah, I hated that. <laughs> Justice is the law. That's how he starts his amazing speech, and then the music starts. Yeah, it was just too much, and it just, like, it felt like it was kind of summing up the morality, and I, I wanted it to be left more open, and instead it felt like, here's here's what we've been aiming toward, like, here's what we're trying to say with this movie, and here's the message, and I didn't want that. I didn't like it. Like, I feel like that's the kind of speech that if it's delivered properly in a book or in a miniseries that kind of sums up, you know, what you've been spending hours and hours and hours reading or watching, you're like, yeah, like, that's the summation here. Like, we literally just watched it. Like, it's not long enough you need to, like, be like, hey, decency is what your grandmother taught you. Go home and be <laughs> decent people. Be decent. It's like, what? what? Yeah. And Why is this? Yeah. Like, it feels like an Oscar moment, wildly out of character. Yeah, it was too much of an Oscar moment. It was, I mean, I don't like monologues pretty much ever. And he, like, gets out from behind the bench and is, like, walking around. And, and it is, it just felt very cheesy to me. And, and I felt like it didn't fit in the movie. And I, yeah, I didn't like it. I feel like the whole movie is cheesy on, on maybe not this level maybe like I think he pushes everything too far by the end and but, you know but it's cheesy without taking itself seriously which is allowed you know like I think that I think that's okay is because it's it's you know it's more knowing and 
It becomes preachy sort of at the end, yeah. Yeah, it becomes preachy and, and serious and, you know, I wanted... I wanted it to stay comedic, which it does kind of go back to comedy, like, by the end. But, yeah, I, that speech I really didn't like. I just had a problem with Morgan Freeman in, in this role. Like, I don't I don't think we needed that first scene with him because it was so far in the beginning of the movie. And we could have set up the assistant DA after that and everything. And it, I, I wasn't sure what we were supposed to be getting out of that. And then he comes back at the end. I'm like, well, what? What? Well, he he lays out that this the like political guy or he's he's going f murray abraham if he's going for mayor or whatever he's doing that he's trying to nail a white guy so morgan freeman just like brings up that idea in that first scene when saul rubinek presents him with the case and he's like i know you're trying to bring a good case to me where we like try a white guy and send him to jail but this isn't it oh okay all right yes. so okay. and then you know, he like strikes gold when he when Bruce Willis writes the story about this hit and run. Yeah, see, I I feel like he could have just shown up uh, in the end, or we could have gotten a stunt cast in that role, like a prestigious. You know, what if Sidney um, Poitier came in as as the judge in the end? You know, and I think that just would have held more weight, just in general, as far as his history in film and everything that that represents too. To see him coming in as the judge and like maybe that speech wouldn't have fallen so flat either, or he would have had some better ideas about it. I well, I doubt it because I don't like anything. <laughs> I don't like monologues and I don't like anything serious. Like, I'd, it wouldn't be any better for me with Sidney Poitier. Only Nicolas Cage could have made that monologue work. <laughs> or Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves is really good at monologues, but, like, no one else is. All in monologues. In the history of acting. In the history of acting, monologues are the worst scene of every movie. Apparently Morgan Freeman said that during filming he knew this would be a monumental commercial disaster. He likened it to a series of mishaps leading up to a plane crash. Every fucking actor says that shit after a movie bombs. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. He also admitted to Jimmy Kimmel in 2003 that he never saw this movie. So again, like, I can see if you're having difficulty on set. Like, there's this novel, there's this sort of tell-all, this book called The Devil's Candy, which comes, the title comes from this executive producer who said, in describing the Melanie Griffith character, that she has to be like the devil's candy. Like, it has to be like this, like, sort of sultry, what, like, exactly, I guess... I don't know if that's a thing, because I know there's a Devil's Candy, which is like a metal horror movie that came out five years ago, which I really like. But like, I don't know if that's like a saying in everyday life, but he described that role as a Devil's Candy kind of thing, the toughest one to cast. And so this tell-all came out, like, basically telling the whole behind-the-scenes what happened in this movie. And I can sort of see that if, you know, you're having a terrible time on set, you know, Austin, like you mentioned earlier, that Bruce Willis wasn't liked, his ego got in the way, he was trying to, like, speed through scenes because he wasn't having a good time, you know, trying to convince people to, like, make things, like, cut things out just because, like, it wasn't working or whatever. Like, I can see if you're an actor having a, a rough time on set, you know, sort of shit-talking after the fact, but still, I don't know, it just feels, I don't, I don't know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not crazy about that either, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that it didn't work for you guys either, but I, no one could have made it work for me because monologues are the worst. I have a question for the both of you, and I'm not sure. Maybe I, I, I probably just missed it. You know, I probably just zoned out at one point, but Zelda Spellman, who's the, that's the only way that I can describe her, The aunt, one of the aunts from Sabrina is in this movie. She's mm-hmm. the one who's flirty with Bruce Willis and, like, takes her underwear off and, like, photocopies her vagina. Yeah. What is her role in this movie? She's an agent, right? Like, she's, I thought she was, like, a writing agent, and, like, he's a reporter, and he's trying to write books now, and so he's like, I got this, and when they meet, he's, like, super drunk, and he's like, didn't he say something like, I got an idea for a book, like, how about you come, like, sit on my face or something like that? And I don't, I don't know, I thought she was an agent, and now that he was hot, she wanted 
whatever he had, you know, he, she wanted to support him in her way. Yeah, I mean, she brings him the information that there's a recording made of Melanie Griffith admitting, admitting to driving. So that's her, like, purpose, but I don't, I don't know, like, why they know each other. It just felt, like, it was funny, to a certain extent, as funny as, like, mm-hmm. having some character that you don't really know acting drunk on screen and sort of being flirty, but I still didn't really quite, like, that's not necessarily my least favorite, like, I think my least favorite part is just the overall how a lot of this did not work for me, like I've been saying, but, like, it just felt like that was, like, a four or five minute scene where I'm like, why is this happening? Like, what is going on here? I mean, I just saw it as the inverse of the earlier moment they had together where she was repulsed by him and now she's like super attracted to him or wants him and stuff and i just thought the i just found comedy in that to be honest i didn't find any meeting any further for me why is she in there at all though like i because i guess because what's weird is that the movie like who is the movie about it's about Hanks, but it's more about Bruce Willis? I think it's supposed to, you know, be about both of them in its way and show that he's climbing the ladder while, she, while Hanks is falling down one. Like, it shoots in ladders, I mm-hmm. guess. But And she's just the part of the world that, the social world, I guess, that Bruce Willis wants to be a part of or revolves around. And uh, it's just another way of saying, oh, like, things are going his way and things are not going uh, Tom Hanks' way. Yeah, and her, I mean, her purpose in the movie is just kind of a point A to point B of just like leading him to the recording because it was because her apartment was bugged that they were using which is a little convoluted and and yeah oh it's all like convoluted I still don't know like where that recording like who sanctioned I mean even though you guys are telling me it was her idea like they just come into the apartment one day and the handyman's there and she Melanie Griffiths has some line about rent control or something like that and like double leasing the apartment and stuff (laughs) so the woman so the fax machine woman that's her apartment and she pays it's rent controlled and she pays 300 a month for it oh I did not catch that neither did I yeah that's that's awesome that is her apartment (laughs) and she is subletting it to Melanie Griffith for For $1,100 yeah so this is like crash or like to a lesser extent something way better which is lost but like people are connected and don't even know it in this movie that the guy who Tom Hanks the girl who Tom Hanks is seeing is renting the apartment from the woman that Bruce Willis is trying to impress and it's like they're never going to meet each oh my god it's crazy and the reason it's recorded is because someone and I I don't know who this was or it, it doesn't really matter but maybe whoever owns the apartment building or something is trying to prove that she's not living there and she's only illegally subletting it the repair guy you know who like bugged the apartment they were trying to find evidence that was somebody trying to find evidence that she wasn't actually living in this apartment yeah they weren't even trying yeah okay so they weren't even trying to catch like Hanks it was a whole completely unrelated matter to the actual crime yeah yeah it was completely unrelated which I think if that was explained better and again maybe it is in the novel who knows but I feel like if that was explained better you would find more meaning in it but as it is it's just like I don't know like I'm glad that you pointed that out because I didn't know the full like I knew because they went into such detail about like the rent control element of it like I caught that part but I didn't realize that it was the, the Aunt Zelda character that was the one that she was renting it from like that's a layer of complexity that doesn't necessarily need to be in the movie but i i know it makes sense like it pays off in the end but still because she says the name she says like i'm renting it from Catherine something i forget the name now but you know then and that's a hard thing to remember it's just like a random character name because like because why would it why would it make sense like why would it why would it need to come back right because like why would you why would you pay attention to that well i paid attention to it because i felt like just the way that she dropped the name and the way she said the name at all like made me okay 
think, like, is this name going to come up again? Like, there's something in how she said it that felt like a setup. So then when she actually comes on screen, her name is said again, and I'm like, oh, that's her apartment. And then and then she also explains, she's like, my apartment was being bugged because they're trying to prove that I wasn't living there, and they obtain this recording that is going to be of interest to you. Plus, maybe if you, having seen it once before and knowing that the bugging was a key plot point, you would be more aware of, like, the goings-on in that apartment, right? So, like, I think that, you know, it's the combination of her delivery of that line, but also just sort of knowing, yeah, I, I don't know, like, I don't I don't think that I would like this movie more a second time, but I guess maybe, I, like, I don't think I would like it less. Well, I, I do want to say that I don't remember shit from any movie that I saw <laughs> before. You know, like, this, I saw it in, like, 20 12 or something i don't remember any of it i thought i was alone maybe in that like in just not remembering movies at all no i i don't remember anything but i think i think that actually is true in that i i am on the lookout for like de palma stuff and for some of his uh trademarks and things and bugging is something that blowout is all about so that might have been like stuck in my mind where he's like doing that intercom and i because I feel like, maybe they don't, but I feel like they say something about it. Like, are you bugging? I don't, I felt like they, like, joked, like, are you bugging the apartment? But maybe not. Maybe I, I don't know. Maybe it was just, like, I subconsciously remembered. Or it just, electronics or something reminded me of Blowout. And then I paid more attention to it. It's a mystery that will persist and live on. Mike, what about you? What is your least favorite part of this movie? Okay, I, I don't know. Let me just go through. I have a couple, but like, as much as I like this movie, there's some parts that are just like utterly ridiculous. I kind of hate the scene and way that Bruce Willis and Tom Hanks meet and they take like a subway ride and then they're like best friends. Oh, you hate that? I kind of like that. <laughs> I kind of hated that for some reason. I was like trying to pick out a scene I liked the least and I was like, why is this coming so late, if at all? Like, I don't know. It was, it was of all the things that they like didn't take far enough that I think they should have. I thought that like this should have come way earlier and they should have like maybe interacted more and I don't know. But for some reason that's the scene that kind of bothered me the most. But I think overall what what really just like I can't get over is like especially this being a De Palma film, Hanks just does not reach that level of fear and paranoia that I really wanted him to get to. And especially, again, saying like how big everybody's going or how I feel everybody is just like pushing their performances and how far like Hanks actually gets in the shotgun scene. It doesn't read enough for me from the point in which he reads the newspaper while he's getting his shoe shine in that incredible shot where it's like all there and stuff. Like from that point on, I feel like he should have been bugging out the whole movie and he's just not. And so I'm glad there's other stuff going on to entertain me, but I just wish that throughout the movie he was like, you know, like in vertigo or something like, you know, really just like freaking out, having like fever dreams and crazy visions and things like that. And so that's one place like I was like, why didn't they go over the top with that? Okay, I can see that. Yeah, I like the subway scene, but it is, you know, now that you point it out, like it's, it's strange that Tom Hanks never finds out who Bruce Willis is, because it seems like it, that's what it's setting up. I think that what it does in a weird way is like what we were talking about before. I think it sets up like the chance encounters and sort of the rising and falling action sort of like this is where they kind of exactly maybe kind of cross paths, right? Like where it's like, I think it's sort of, you know, where they're, if one starts at the bottom, one starts at the top and they're sort of, you know, on on a, 
a line graph there going in opposite directions, like the subway sort of where they meet, and it's by meeting, and it's by him hearing that, like, I wasn't even driving, it was her, even though he doesn't know who her is, that's where he's like, I have a lead now, right? And I feel like if the whole movie is supposed to be, and I like that idea, I don't remember who, who said it, Mike, if it was you or if it was Austin. Yeah, it was Mike. If, if the whole movie is supposed to be one rising as the other falls, I think that's kind of the, the junction point. And I think that it could have been better, it could have been deeper, it could have had more meaning, but I think, if nothing else, it's symbolic of the way that, you know, they all sort of end in the opposite place of where they began. Wow, I like that. I'm glad you liked that scene. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that, too. That's a great reading of it. Still don't like the movie, but I like that scene, so there we go. <laughs> Is there anything else about this movie that you you would be remiss to not speak about uh, before we uh, maybe play a couple games and I go through some more trivia? But anything else about the movie? Any other parts or moments or lines that you want to mention? Like, I don't want to mention any, like, crazy moments or anything like that because I just think, like, listeners, go see this movie for me. Just check this movie out. Mm. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's really entertaining. 100% worth seeing. You will not regret watching this movie. Please see it. But the only thing that um, jumped out at me that I want to mention, which I thought, like, it really jumped out of me and I wasn't aware of it is um, Alan King is in this movie and I'm friends with his grandson so to see him in this movie was uh, was really funny to it was like whoa an Alan King performance I, I wasn't aware of I think he for the brief amount of time he's in this as Melanie Griffith's sort of sugar daddy does a great job like he knows exactly what movie he's in well they're married I think right oh okay so there is her actual husband yeah because they have the same last name okay all right I did not I did not catch that this um, I'll have to rewatch it to catch that. But like, he knows exactly what movie he's in, and he's like in and out of this movie. And he's got um, that great scene with Bruce Willis at the dinner. Well, maybe it's not great, Joey, but like, he's got that scene I really like with Bruce Willis at the dinner table, where he like just drops dead at the end of the scene and everything. I was like, what an incredible exit from a movie. I just, <laughs> I, I, I like, I liked him in this a lot. Uh, speaking of actors in small parts, I did like him in this movie. I also liked seeing a very baby face, but more importantly, not salt and pepper hair, Kevin Dunn, uh, who plays Ben on Veep. He was, I guess, the lawyer, I think? Hanks' lawyer? Yeah, yeah, he's Hanks' lawyer. And I just, I, I like him as a character actor, and I thought that was cool to see him in this. I mean, I, I pretty much, I'm sure I've seen him in a lot of things, but I pretty much only know him from Whoa, Veep. Dude, he's shy as dad in Transformers. Oh, yeah! Remember, we're watching it going, mm-hmm. holy shit, Kevin Dunn, thank God you're in this movie. <laughs> yes, cause, man. I, so, so uh, Austin, I don't know if you know our... Well, there's a real, there's a real baby in this movie. Uh, oh, Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Dunst. Dunst. Yeah, little... Her first movie. Little Kirsten. I think it was her, it's her first credited movie, but she was like someone's daughter in a, in some other thing. Because she was also in Interview of the Vampire, right? She was the daughter in that too. So she's played a young girl in two, in both Tom Toms. Oh, uh, Yeah. I also do want to say that she's in a new show on Showtime on Becoming a God in Central Florida, and I'm still not sure if I love the show or not. I'm still watching it, but she's great on it. Um, so she's still acting. She's still doing her thing in the year of our Lord 2019. She's the best. Also, I want to say that I don't know if you uh, know Mike and my theory about the Transformers movies is that at least the first one, when there's no robots on screen, good movie. When a robot shows up, not a good movie. But like the family, the Witwicky family, Kevin Dunn and Shia and the mom one, whose name I'm forgetting right now, like they're great. Oh, yeah, she's great. I, I love that movie without robots. And then the robot show up, it's like, I don't care anymore. But that's our, that was our big takeaway from our Shia podcast, basically. I haven't seen it in a while, but what I remember most from the first Transformers movie is that the first thing that you hear a Transformer say is he's asking Shia if he's like he like uses his ebay username and it's like are you nerdy boy 3013 or like it's some (laughs) 
it's some like funny like stupid ebay name and it's the very yeah. first thing you hear a, tr- a transformer say and i <laughs> think that is amazing and then he's asking him about like a pair of glasses or something like it's just like a ridiculous scene all those movies are great and michael bay is an auteur well i would agree that he's an auteur i would not say that they're all great but uh that is a, as a topic for a different podcast that michael and i've already spent a lot of time talking about yeah, I like the first one the best, for sure. Um, I don't think I have any more notes about this. I have trivia, but Mike, do you have anything else to say, or do you want to just make sure that you got out what you got out? I just want to say, like, you know, this, this I did not expect this movie to entertain me so much, and it's not like it's my cup of tea or anything. Like, I don't love these types of movies and stuff, or whatever it's supposed to represent, like, just these... Well, I guess, you know, I do I do like sort of paranoid thrillers, but I, I I never expected this to be so, like, funny and entertaining and just, like, have this much fun. Like, I just can't fully explain, like, why I like it, but it's one of those movies that, that hit me in a certain way that, uh, like, I, I just, I, I don't know. I rewatch this, like, a lot. Like, I'll I'll put it on and just have oh, it on boy. or something. Like, that's how it feels. And, Joey, like, no one's more surprised than I am. It's like revisiting Jerry Maguire, you know, in that episode. Like, the way I was, I was like, I can't believe I'm feeling this way. But uh, I feel this way, and I can't deny how I feel about a movie. And I'm one of the ones that really like Bonfire of the Vanities out there, so uh, recommend. Well, that is certainly a stance to take. Austin, what about you? Anything else you want to say about this movie before I rattle off some quick trivia and we play a couple games? No. Yeah, I don't have anything important. Just to, I, I liked it, and I think it's, you know, if you watch it, watch it as a comedy. And also, just like, if you're a De Palma obsessive, it's fun to just, like, look out for all of his things. Because it's very well made, you know? Like, uh, technically, like, it's very well made, and he, he does a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, I think the problems are with the script. I don't think it's with the filmmaking. I don't think it's with the acting. I think it's... I think it's a little bit of the casting. I think it's the script. You think it's at the at the core level? Of, yeah, I think at the at most thing, basic the level, this movie does not work. <laughs> Beyond that, all the artifice, ex- exquisite. I think the problem is the book. I think the book is probably a piece of shit. Everyone <laughs> is wrong. And no one is, wanted to say they hated it back when it was they read it. No one wants to admit that they don't like a book. Yeah, I I think if people don't like the story, it's all Tom Wolfe's fault. Uh, two little bits of trivia. A sword fight between the Tom Hanks character and the Bruce Willis character was shot for the end, but never used. I don't know where oh, swords come I from. I saw but... that. What the fuck? Is that a reason to buy the Blu-ray? Is that a special feature? Oh my god. How does a sword fight come in? Don't know. I guess maybe if, you know, where he's got that musket, he's probably got a sword, too. I don't know. And Kristen Scott Thomas, who has been in a bunch of stuff, she's great. I think of her now as, uh, I wish that I thought of, maybe not wish, but, like, I think of her as Gosling's mom in Only God Forgives. And terrible, terrible mom in that movie. Uh, but she screen tested for Judy, the Kim Cattrall part, and was on vacation when they wanted her to screen test with Hanks. And so Palma was like, I'll get you later. And he cast her in Mission Impossible. So uh, she got her due. And there's a little bit of a Tom Tom crossover there. Um, and then in terms of casting, Jack Nicholson and John Cleese both turned down the Bruce Willis role. And then for the Melanie Griffith part, Michelle Pfeiffer, Kira Sedgwick, Robin Wright, Uma Thurman all were considered or offered the part. Uh, De Palma wanted Uma Thurman, but Hanks felt uncomfortable with her lack of acting experience and persuaded De Palma not to cast her. That would obviously, you know, she became, she's a great actress now. Uh, But I was just thinking, because when my friend was telling me that there was a a book written about this movie, I wondered if this movie was documented in Nathan Rabin's My Year of Flops. He used to write for the, he may still write for the AV Club, but he used to do this thing like, you know, this My Year of Flops or whatever, we talk about a movie that tanked at the box office, which I don't know if this did, I'm going to look that up. 
Was it actually bad? Was it was it like a secret success or whatever? This movie is not in there. Joe vs. the Volcano is in there, but he, he deems it as a secret success, like it's actually a good movie. But what I completely forgot about, bringing it all the way back to Uma, the reason I mentioned this all, is that even Cowgirls Get the Blues is in this book. And I don't remember, let me take a look real quick, but, uh, you know, I, I, I love Uma, and just thinking about that movie makes me question, like, whether I, whether or not I like acting in general. Uh, I'm going to have to say two gigantic thumbs down for me when it comes to that movie. Let's see here. Uh, failure. So not a fiasco. Not so bad it's good, and not actually secretly a good movie, but yeah, even Cowgirls Got the Blues is just a, uh, just a failure. So Bonfire of the Vanities, box office mojo, budget of $47 million. Whew, made 15 at the box office. So, came out Christmas 1990. Where'd all that money? That, that must be, a lot of that must be, like, cast salary. And- so Hanks and Bruce Willis both made $5 million each. Ten of it goes right there. I'm sure that, you know, a bunch of other people like Morgan Freeman might have gotten a couple million. Melanie Griffith maybe got a million or two. Like, there's probably 15 or 20 tied up in, in casting. And then just, I'm sure, I don't know, film stock? I mean, yeah, they're shooting in New York around the city, you know, during the day for the most part. Like, Oh, yeah, the, the hellscape of the Bronx I thought was kind of funny, too, and kind of great. When they first go to the Bronx, it, is, it just looks like such a, a nightmare. You know, and I felt it was, like, a little exaggerated and kind of, you know, played for comedic effect, and it, I thought it was great. So that's not, like, a favorite part, but that's just something else I liked. So I think we talked about this earlier. If Tom Cruise was cast in this, I think we already sort of covered that it would be more serious. It wouldn't be as comedic. It wouldn't be the same kind of movie. So we can sort of skip over that game. Now, Austin, I don't know if I'm going to play this game, Mike. You can choose to play it or not. I mean, now that this is your favorite movie of all time, maybe you want to put yourself in it. But if you're going to Stan Lee yourself, Austin, if you were going to win a walk-on role into the Bonfire of the Vanities, what scene would you find yourself in? Who would you be playing? You know, who would you be talking to? Who would you be interacting with? Your current day, current age, or you could also be seven or eight, either one. Yeah, so I'll have two answers. Um, okay. But yeah, if I was a, a kid, I could be like Kirsten's friend who's just running around with her. But if it's now, I would like to be when Bruce Willis like grabs a handful of salmon and then he like gets out of the elevator <laughs> and he just like tosses it. I would love it to be like hit in the face with the salmon or ooh no. He also because he throws like glasses too. Like he he keeps just like kind of tossing stuff aside and I and I love when he tosses like the champagne glasses because there's these like exaggerated uh, glass breaking sound effects which are always funny. But I would love if he like throws a glass and you just hear like an ow and then the camera is like tracking and following him out and going behind and you just see me in the background with like blood coming down my face. Love it. Like I got hit in the face with this glass, and then in the in the in the sorted backstory that you had to do like twelve takes of this one shot because it just it wasn't breaking right in your head and it wasn't bleeding. You were you were the the missing link in this whole scene, and they wouldn't cut you out. They they needed to keep you in there because you were the uh, the, the the director's nephew, and uh, you had to be in the scene. Yeah, I, I want to be. I definitely want to be De Palma's nephew. Uh, Mike, do you want to put yourself in this movie or no? Because I don't I don't know if I have a place to stick myself. I mean, quickly, I just think it would be hilarious if during the press conference in the Bronx when the guy who's, I guess, I think he's supposed to be a Jesse Jackson kind of guy, like back when... Al Sharpton, I think, was... Al Sharpton, okay, yeah. He's kind of basing him off of. I think I'm going to place myself during that press conference in the 
Bronx where Bruce Willis is standing next to Geraldo. Um, and right before they go to like the split screen thing, I'm standing next to Geraldo on the other side. Ooh. But like as they're panning, like you barely see me and then the camera like kind of snaps into split screen. <laughs> and maybe you just see like my shoulder and like my right foot or something for the rest love of the it. shot. What I really loved about that split screen is that they have uh, that character, the, the, Al, the Al Sharpton type character on the left and then he's on the TV on the right so you see him in both sides and you have him in sort of two different contexts. Like I love that. Like it's mm-hmm. so specifically well done. I was like, man, this is this is great. I love how De Palma just uses the frame. Yep. Like you know, Austin was saying earlier, like everything in the background is like packed into this movie. There's so much going on and like everything is staged and it's it's really just fun to like watch the background. We have an email address on the, here on the show, hanks at cageclub.me if you want to write in, let us know what you think of this movie because I mean, we're sort of a split jury here. I, in, my, in my write-up for this episode, I said that, you know, we have two counselors on either side of the, 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 the case and that Austin were going to act as the... Uh, the judge as Morgan Freeman, even possibly more sassy than him if that was all possible. So if you have a thought about Bomb by the Vanities, if you wanted to let us know what you think of either the book or the movie, hanks at cageclub.me. Very important question for the two of you today. Does Tom Hanks do anything in this movie that sets him on the road to becoming America's dad? I'm going to say for the first time in a while, I think it's kind of a relatively clear no. Yeah, I'm I'm going to agree, especially since, like, up until the end, he's a liar. Yeah. Like, he's a lying bastard, you know, so hell no for me. Yeah. Austin, do you agree with that? Do you think there's anything in here that sort of salvages him, um, you know, becoming America's dad in just a few short years? No. No, I don't think so. Final thing to do is to nominate this movie for some awards. The Woodies, the Tom Hanks Awards. Uh, best film, worst film, you know, Mike, we disagreed about uh, Interview of the Vampire. Yeah, best film. Best no, no, <laughs> best no. I love, I like this more than Interview with the Vampire for sure. Well, I am, by, I, like, will, I will go to my grave before I put this on the best films list. <laughs> God damn it. I will put this on though, I, I will give you credit, best of the worst, most fun, bad film. I'll say Bonfire of the Vanities. I'll take that. I will take that for sure because I think that's deep down how I ultimately feel about this movie. And it's like, even though it is like, you know, technically way better than any of that VHS Drek that I love, like, it still feels like one of those movies, you know, deep down, that's how I enjoy like, you know, it, so I'll take Generally, it. objectively, this is not good. I mean, you can enjoy it. Like, I'm not going to say don't enjoy it, mm-hmm. but... As a movie, it doesn't work the way it necessarily should. Yeah, I think I was trying to say that a little earlier, right? And sort of got, like, tripped up a little bit in what I was, what I meant. But, right, yeah, when I was saying, like, I understand why people don't like this movie. Yeah, I think because it's, like, it's not a good movie, but I fucking love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will not admit any of that. I think it's a good movie, and people <laughs> should approach it from, you know, a new lens, and, and it's due for a reappraisal. And this is going to be a classic well, here's, here's what I can promise you, that when I when I read this book next fall, probably sometime, I think it's toward the end of the list, I will then, I don't know if I want to commit to this, watch the movie again, maybe, and see if it works better, see if I appreciate it more. Maybe I'll hate it more. I don't know. Not that I hate it at all, but you know, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Best role, worst role, in the grand scheme of things, I think it's kind of in the middle-ish somewhere for Hanks. Yeah, I'll agree. I'll give you that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I won't argue that it's his one of his best because this is a man who is three and four years away from winning back-to-back oscars right like it's not you know this is not on par with necessarily whatever his character's name is in philadelphia or forrest gump like not that i like forrest gump as a movie necessarily i'm i'm fearful to watch that but 
I think, uh, yeah, I probably won't wouldn't like either of those performances. But plus, he's kind of done this before, right? Like in Volunteers, it's just as far as like this, you know, ultra socialite one percenter. Like I like what he's doing in Volunteers, yeah, much more. You know, as the character, like he embodies that better in that movie. Most wasted performance, I'll say no. Best ensemble, I think there's good parts here, but I think on a whole, it's not the best ensemble. People spend too much time apart, right? Is that matter with an ensemble? I don't know. Well, I guess I don't think so. I think there's a lot of really good performances in here. You know, by good, I just mean funny because I don't like know how to separate those two things. But with like Cattrall and Melanie Griffith and Bruce Willis and I don't know, other people were good. But I, I think it's a, a good ensemble. And that was something I like kind of came away with or thought of during the movie. It was just like, this is packed with like great people like doing good work. Like the cast is like, when I saw the opening credits, like Tom Hanks, Bruce Willis, Morgan Freeman, I was like, what the hell? Like, what is going on? And then, you know, I appreciate that. I'm not arguing that with you. And if I want to, if I want to quote Joe versus Volcano, I'm not arguing that with you. Um, I know that they can get the job. I just don't know if they can do the job. Um, so I'm going to respectfully disagree. But I, I, I think you may, I think you made a good argument. I do want to, for sure nominate Melanie Griffith later when we get to the best non-Hanks male and female like she's great like I want to give her all of the praise that she deserves I just don't know that you know Bruce I, I again I, I can't credit Bruce Willis in this Morgan Freeman's whole speech at the end I uh, I think Bruce Willis is so good like I love what Bruce Willis is doing here but Melanie Griffith when she shows up she kind of like steals it you know what I'm saying you know like it's hard not to pay attention to anything else and mm. what she's doing is great best fight if there was a sword fight i would put that in here but uh there is not so we can't um best dance scene i don't think there's a dance scene of note right best party scene i will say uh hanks oh, hanks, well, yeah. uh, hanks in his gun best hanks outfit wardrobe no best death he still has not died in a movie um, it's incredible well maybe not that incredible but he's had opportunity and they've written it out is he going to die oh yeah okay there's one movie that he's definitely going to die in that, that's coming up soon, Oh, uh, if memory serves. If he wins an Oscar for that movie, you mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the one that I have not seen? Named after a city. I don't know, but I feel like, you know, for somebody who's made 65 movies, I think he normally lives. Uh, best line or best line by Tom Hanks. I don't know if he has, like, there's great lines in this movie, obviously, from Melanie Griffith. I don't know if he has a line that, uh, that, that qualifies here. Best freak out, though, um, chasing people away from the party, right? Yeah. Best soundtrack theme, no. Best or worst, best or worst love story. Again, like the love story is not great. It's just his interactions with Melanie Griffith are great because of the because of what she's bringing to it. Like they're actual. Like I don't know if they have chemistry together. No one's in love in this movie. True. Yeah, everyone's using each other. Right. Yeah. Uh, most badass role, no. And then best non-Hanks actor, male or female, for sure, Melanie Griffith. Yeah, definitely her. I would nominate Kim Cattrall as well. All right. Like you said before, everyone's using everyone else just for anything, right? Like, whether it's for socializing, whether it's for career gain, whether it's for whatever. Everyone's an object, everyone's a pawn in everyone else's chess game, so. Yeah. It's all a big bonfire. So apparently Bonfire of the Vanities is like a saying? Oh, really? Really? Yeah, I, I, that was something I wanted to bring up, is what, what's with the title? According to Wikipedia, it's a burning of objects condemned by authorities as occasions of sin. External circumstances, whether of things or persons, which either because of their special nature or because of the frailty common to humanity or peculiar to some individual, incite or entice one to sin. Yeah, so I guess it's like anything that exists that makes you want to go like, oh yeah, I should do some crimes or, you know, 
whatever. I don't know. That's that's a the burning of that is a bonfire of the vanities. Has it, have we figured out what season of the witch means yet? Because I remember that being another title turn of phrase that like whatever, but it reminded me of that though. Like oh, a bonfire of the vanities. It's like a made up term that's like just seemed like something made up to sound complex and interesting that didn't actually have a meaning but it does so well michael i don't i don't know the answer to that but i do know that as of the day this comes out 41 more days till halloween 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 41 more days till halloween silver shamrock so can't wait should we mention that we're recording this on a special date because it's brian de palma's birthday at the time of recording Oh, it is, yes. I, I thought you were saying it's a special date because it's 9-11, which I guess it also is a special date, but also Brian De Palma's birthday. Also, of note to another podcast of ours, or a couple of podcasts that we that we have on the network, Mike, it's E.G. Daly's birthday. So from oh, Dolly Girl awesome. and from uh, Better Off Dead, right? She's in that too. So, you know, our 80s captured our hearts in the 80s, 1980s. Happy birthday nine days ago as you listen to this, E.G. Daly. But Austin, thank you for coming on to talk about Bonfire of the Vanities on Mr. De Palma's birthday. Uh, you'll be back for a couple more movies in the, in the not-so-distant future, once over on Cruise, once again here on Hanks, and then probably more down the stretch. Who knows? But again, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And if you want to let people know, I know that you said that Cinema Stories exists, but you haven't added new things to. If you want to be found on the internet, where should people go to find you? You can search my name with Cinema Stories on YouTube. Is you know, I'm proud of those things that I did. Or on Letterboxd, I'm somewhat active. Or I think I, I plugged this last time, but I'm on Venmo if you want to just send me a few <laughs> bucks. Did anyone last time send you money? No. Damn. No, of course not. You know, nobody's sending in emails and nobody's sending you money, so that's that's a shame. It's a dub- double shame. Yeah, feel free to just send me money. No questions asked. Uh, I will, I'll, I'll accept it. I do want to point out on the letterbox. I do like when you like one of my old reviews of something because I know that that means that you have just seen whatever you just liked of mine, and so I get to go see what you think of a movie. Usually, a movie that I haven't really thought about. You know, a Nicolas Cage movie. You know, you're one of the very few people on Letterboxd uh, who will give a, a Nicolas Cage movie as high of a rating as I tend to as well. So uh, go check out Wolf Southern over on Letterboxd. We found you on Letterboxd. I mean, not that we found you like you know you weren't a person otherwise, but like we discovered your shared love of the specific kinds of movies that we like specifically because of can't stop the music over on letterbox so go check out at wolf southern over there at soul popped and at mikester if you want to follow all of us but for all things hanks from the memories and cruise club and tom tom club and all 25 shows on the network you go to cageclub.me facebook.com slash cage club or at cage club pod on twitter and instagram email us hanks at cageclub.me come back next week for Cruise Club, big movie. It's eyes wide shut. And then in two weeks, we've got the last Tom Hanks movie before we go biggest movies of all time for a decade in Radio Flyer. Yeah, eyes wide shut, Radio Flyer, Magnolia, and then kicking off a league of their own and then literally like 13 years of nothing but hits for Hanks. So I'm excited for that. Go check out everything out at cageclub.me or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Austin Wolf Southern. We'll see you next time right here on Hanks for the Memories. You're bringing up phantom issues.